new series. We finished the series on engaging the culture. Obviously, much more can be said, and you can have a whole year's worth of study on that topic. But we must turn now to another topic, very important one. As I mentioned last week, this series is instructing us on the very thing we are going to do in a little over an hour, and the thing that we're going to do for eternity. So, if I could compel you to attend this, I would, because, but you're all here, but people who are, but there are people who are going to be listening to this. If you're listening, come. (laughs) Uh, It's very important. Okay, so we're going to begin uh, with this morning with uh, a definition of corporate worship, preparation. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the RPW, which I'll ask you to define for us in just a little, and then uh, hopefully this will prepare us for the whole series. Now, to set the, the, the mood, uh, I want to just read, without commenting, at least at this point, Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words May the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Very awe-inspiring text there. So we have, uh, again, the, the topic is worship. Now, we've limited in our study, we've limited this study to corporate worship. Okay, I'm not, not talking here about private worship, not talking here about family worship, which are legitimate expressions of worship, which everyone is uh, privileged to do. We all, we all, we had all of us to be privately worshiping the Lord and as a family worshiping the Lord. But this series is about corporate worship. So Romans 12.1 focuses on that uh, private worship, if you will, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's 
all of life. We say all of life is worship. That's what Paul is getting at there. Present all that you are before God as an act of worship. But we're talking here about that concentrated corporate worship. Again, what we're doing for all eternity. So a few definitions before us. David Peterson, who is an Anglican, says, here's, here's how he defines corporate worship, in engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So, an engagement with God, basically on God's terms. That seems, uh, there's nothing wrong with that definition. It's, it's, a, it's good as far as it goes. We are engaging with the Lord when we come to worship him. And we come only through uh, his, his work. We don't come through our own sacrifices. We don't come th- through any mediator except Jesus Christ. God alone has, has made salvation possible, in fact, actual for those who are in him. So it's not a bad definition. It's pretty good. Jonathan Gibson, in uh, his book, Reformation Worship, And this is a rather lengthy definition of corporate worship. He says, Worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for what he has done in creation and redemption, and for what he will do in the coming consummation. To whom be all praise and glory, now and forever, world without end. Amen. He includes amen in his definition of what worship is. Notice that Gibson goes farther than Peterson does by saying that this is for all moral beings, whether you are angelic or human. Angels worship God. And notice that it's not just generically speaking of God. It's God who is the creator, who's the redeemer, the consummator, who is triune, one God, three persons. And notice the content of this worship is, or at least the grounds for this worship is, for who he is. We worship God for who he is. As we think about the the awesome being of God, our hearts are to be driven to worship. And who God is translates into what he does, so we also worship God for what he has done in and through us, what he has done for us. He has redeemed us. He has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. What a, what a blessing, what a joy it is then to worship God for what he's done and also for what he has said he would do. So there is this worship of what is happening, what is unfolding and what will ultimately take place. We worship with hope, with confidence of what God will do. We live in this already, not yet reality, and there are things that we are anticipating we, uh, that will not be fulfilled until Christ comes back, and that's part of what we worship for. Okay. And Jonathan Cruz, in his book, What Happens When We Worship, says, uh, corporate worship is coming together with a body of believers regularly on Sunday to offer praise to God, That's a picture of what goes on in heaven. Okay. So he focuses on what we're going to look at in a little bit. What we do here is a picture of what goes on in heaven. 
Now, you guys know what this beautiful blue binder is? I'm showing it without the words. What was that, D? <laughs> Kathy? The BCO, Book of Church Order. Yes. This is a beautiful blue binder with wonderful content in it. And it gets revised every year. So we have you know, supplements and edits that we have to apply each, each year. Because it's not the Bible, but it is a guide for us. And it is divided into three sections. The first is the form of government. So this is what, how, how you define a church, what the offices are, and the different courts. And you have the session, the Presbytery, and General Assembly, what to do with the, uh, how to get a pastor, and how to dissolve a pastoral call, and stuff like that. Second part is the rules of discipline. This is something that the session doesn't like having to do, but uh, it's part of church government, uh, disciplining the church generally, uh, broadly, and instructing the members, but then also when there are intractable members uh, proceeding through you know, judicial process to uh, seek their repentance, and if not, then to uh, remove them from the church. And then the third part is the directory for the worship of God. This is, uh, um, it's, not, it's not every day when you get to pull out the BCGO in an ABF lesson or uh, in other, like a small group or something. You know, well, the BCGO says. But I'll be doing that when, when I teach. I'll be doing that because there, one of the reasons for this Book of Church Order is to direct us on how we might worship God. So chapters 47 through 63 are all related to the various things that we will be exploring in this series so the principles and elements of public worship, the sanctification of the Lord's Day, ordering public worship, and on and on. And I'll be quoting from several of those sections this morning and next week. We also have copies of these if you are interested in reading some, <laughs> if you have nothing better to read. Okay. So BCO 47.2 speaks about public worship, and this is how it understands what we're doing. It is a, a service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but before, else, before all else, it is a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. God is present in public worship because of his omnipresence, but more importantly, because of his covenantal fidelity. So, BCO understands a service of public worship to be uh, not just Christians coming together and you know, talking about the things of God. That is what we ought to be doing. We do that even now. This is not corporate worship, and we do that in small groups. We do that uh, if you're maybe at a coffee shop, you're a gathering of believers talking about the things of God. Those are not many corporate worships, Okay. They say that it's a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. Not because simply that he's omnipresent, that he's just everywhere, and so you cannot escape him, but because of his covenantal fidelity, because he has committed himself to you. He has made you his people. And because of that, he is always going to be faithful to meet you every Lord's Day 
as you come and hear his call to worship. What an assurance we have then. What a, what a joy that is that every time we come and we hear the call to worship, we know that our God, our Father, Son, Holy Spirit is here present to bless us with himself. It is a meeting with God. So, uh, meeting with God, there is uh, several Old Testament illustrations, uh, or you could even say types or shadows of uh, what we do in the fullness here, in the fullness of time with um, corporate worship. You have the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to do a whole biblical theology of this, but if, you've, if you're here for any length of time, you know uh, Garden of Eden, uh, tabernacle, temple, those are specific locales where God especially is present to bless his people and where the people then are to serve the Lord in worship. That might look like giving sacrifices, uh, singing songs. Exodus 25, verse 8 and verses 21 and 22, in the section of various contributions for the sanctuary, for the, uh, the tabernacle, we read, in verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So, yes, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He's not limited by space or time. But he wants his Old Testament people, his Old Testament saints, to make a sanctuary so that he would meet with them there, that he might dwell in their midst. That means is a special kind of presence where he is specially present to bless, to give of himself for his people. Verses 21 and 22 say, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So there the Lord will, will meet with Moses, we'll, we'll meet with uh, the, the priests, we'll meet with God's people through the atoning work of sacrifice, a, a lamb. God meets with us through the blood of, uh, of, of a sacrifice that's perfect, spotless. Go with me to Hebrews. There are several sections in Hebrews that we'll be looking at. So, meeting with God... So we see in the Old Testament, we see this as well in the New Testament. We meet with God through Christ. In Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What are these holy places that we now have confidence to enter? Is this a, a temple in the New Testament time that we are to be, uh, we are to make, that, the, that the Christians are to make sure doesn't, doesn't get destroyed? No, what, what, he has, what the author has in mind here is the heavenly holy places. Remember, if, if meeting with God is, 
It's a picture of what's going on in heaven. And as I read in Hebrews 12, what we come to is much greater than what they came to in the Old Testament. We come to, uh, we come to heaven. Okay? We are ascending to heaven. The holy places in heaven have been opened wide for us that, that we may go in. We may worship. And they're opened wide through our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who opened the gates by his blood. And now we have full confidence that we can come into the presence of God and not be driven away, but be, uh, but be heartily welcomed because we come through the blood of Christ. That's why we can uh, have full assurance because our hearts have been sprinkled clean. So we meet with God. We meet with God through Christ. We meet with God in heaven, which I already mentioned from Hebrews 12. And if you were to look at Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2, we know that Christ is seated in the holy places, that is, in heaven. So that's where he takes us through his own mediation and mysteriously through the, uh, the service of the Holy Spirit. Heaven breaks in or opens up, and we, so that we would ascend Mount Zion. And something like this even happens in a more concentrated form in, in the Lord's Supper. Well, uh, I believe it's uh, Elder Connor Aubrey who's going to explain the Lord's Supper uh, later on in the series. But that's what goes on. Our bodies are, are here on earth, but we are transported to the heavenly places wherein Christ is seated, and we are truly feeding upon him who is body and soul. We are feeding upon him by faith. That's where he is. So that's where he takes us, by his spirit. How that all works out, I don't know. That it works out, I'm assured. So now, you know, the military loves their acronyms, and so do Reformed theologians as well. The RPW, I think I might have actually defined it or given it to you in the handout, didn't I? Uh, okay, well, I guess that denies you a question. The RPW, regular principle of worship. So here's a, here's a question. Then what is the RPW? If you were to explain the regular principle of worship, how would you, would you say? What would you say? Okay. Certain acts from God that we are commanded to perform for God. Some things we should avoid, like idolatry. Okay, so not everything goes in uh, overall in worship uh, and, and specifically in corporate worship. You can't just have whatever you want. Hopefully, you wouldn't want things that God doesn't want, but some people do want things that God does not want, or they pretend that He wants them. Okay, so the RPW is essentially you know, worship as God has commanded, as God has regulated, and that involves acts to to do and things to avoid. John Calvin says God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His Word. So by uh, explicitly through His Word, by good and necessary consequences we should be able to determine how God has regulated worship. William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, says, When God is not known aright, 
he is not worshipped aright. But either the idols of our brain are worshipped or devils. So the, we see the necessity then of knowing God rightly, that we might worship him rightly and not our own imaginations, certainly not idols or devils. The Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 1 says, But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So God determines how he is to be worshipped. And he reveals that to us. He's not, he's not um, putting us in a position where we're just trying to guess. Okay, is God going to like this? I don't know. Let's just, let's just think about what God might like. No, God has revealed how he is to be worshipped. If that's the very thing, if that's the purpose for our existence, certainly the Lord is going to tell us how to do that. And, of course, we're not referring specifically to or only to external acts. It's a, it's a heart as well. It's the heart matter. The, the acts flow out of a heart that is full of love for the Lord, but is then guided by the Word of God. So sincerity is not sufficient for worship. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong, as they say. You just consider the cults, consider false religions. They are sincerely worshiping their God or their gods, but they're wrong. And there are people who profess the, the name of Christ and might even be genuine believers, but they offer um, strange fire, if you will, to the Lord. There are many examples of, of how God disapproves of um, wrong worship. So Cain and Abel would be an example. Or Nadab and Abihu. Remember them, the sons of Aaron, who offered up strange fire and they were struck down. And the Lord said, he will be sanctified among those who come near him. And Aaron held his peace. The entire law, the, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, are very clearly telling Israel, this is how you are to worship me. Here's the furniture you put in this spot and that spot. Here's how many of this you need. Here's what, here's what the, the tent is to look like. Here's even how you are supposed to position yourselves before the tabernacle. This tribe goes here. That tribe goes there. So we have some in the north. He, he is very particular about where people are and what people do. So we have that well-grounded in the Old Testament. And then the author in Hebrews 9.1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's, that's very clear. You, you read the Old Testament and you know that God prescribed the way that he is to be worshipped. And the author to the Hebrews often argues uh, in a way that's it was called a fortiori. It's stronger, how much more so? So um, in Hebrews 12, which we read at the start of this lesson, 
He says, you guys aren't going to Mount Sinai as they did in the Old Testament. You're not going there anymore. And that was a terrifying reality for people, so much so that they said, Moses, you, 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 you talk to the Lord. We're going to just stand by over here. Okay? And the author says, well, how much more than what you guys are coming to? You must not refuse him who is speaking to you. Because you're coming to the, the reality, the substance, the, the fulfillment. That Mount, 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 Zion, or Mount Sinai was a type of heavenly Mount Zion. You have the fullness in Christ. So don't take it lightly. So we have regulations in the Old Testament, regulations in the New. I give you there a sample liturgy. The word liturgy just means the service of the people, the work of the people. You'll often hear me in corporate worship referring to the liturgy. and that's, It's just the layout, the order of worship, the order of service. And Lincoln Duncan, I know a controversial figure uh, to, to many, even mentioned by John Harris last week, uh, who has said that Duncan has sold out, and perhaps in some ways he has. But Duncan wrote a book on worship, which I believe I put in the recommendation, recommended resources. It says... If we could boil down what worship is in the light of the regular principle of worship, we can say it's this. Read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. I don't think that's controversial. That's, um, or it ought not to be anyways. We are uh, people who love the Word of God. So what do we do? We, we hear the Word read. We hear the Word preached. We, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we see the Bible, see the Bible as in, in baptism or in the Lord's Supper. So this and next week, we're looking at greetings, announcements, and the calls to worship. Uh, in a couple weeks, Elder Ron will, will look at the confession of sin, and Johnny will do professions of faith. Uh, I'll have one lesson on prayers that are said and sung. Harry will do a lesson on tithes and offerings. I'll come back and do a lesson on reading Scripture and preaching Scripture and the benediction, the blessing. And then uh, Connor will finish the series with the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So greetings. We come into the presence of God greeted by His grace needed for coming. Uh, We take these greetings usually from the first part of maybe Paul's epistle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and sometimes say, well, grace, grace to you, and some of you say, and to you, or to you also. Uh, some churches are content with having that single greeting from the minister. The very start, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Other churches, in other contexts, I've, I've seen the minister, minister encourages a brief time of greeting one another in the Lord. So take a few minutes to see someone new or to greet someone in the Lord. And I was part of a church that did this for a number of years. Uh, you got two or three minutes, maybe some at the top, would, in the front rows would go all the way down the back and shake a, shake a visitor's hand or greet them in the Lord and, and then hurry on back to, the, to where they were sitting. The point is, we have been greeted by God, and so we hear his greeting, and we greet one another, or we receive that greeting. 
Again, this is all an act of grace. In the Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, and 1 Peter 5, we see the uh, encouragement to greet people. So all the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Or greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So sometimes in a liturgy, you'll have the greeting first and then the call to worship. Other times, you'll have the call to worship and then the greeting. You've, you've heard God's call, but you are hearing that in the context of being greeted by God. You can go, I think you can go either way here. But at some point, there, there tends to be an area for announcements, and it's usually a rather brief time. Some churches are content with having the announcements just put in the, the worship folder or to be disseminated you know, electronically or posted somewhere. Um, I can see the, the, the rationale for that. We, we don't want to be so distracted by um, goings-on that we forget the very reason we're there, which is to sing praise to the Lord. But also, these goings-on are part of the life of the church, and we want one another to be involved in these things. So usually, the announcements are going to come right before the call to worship. That's how, that's how I've done it. Um, or they will come after the benediction. I don't like doing it that way because I want you to end with being blessed by the Lord and not then having, to, uh, having your attention diverted to some other things, which are important. But uh, I want you to go in, uh, in presence of being blessed. And usually these are brief as possible, and just the most significant ones, most pressing, like a congregational meeting, you know, something like that. I do not announce all of the announcements at that time. Sometimes I don't give you any announcements. Other times I give you two or three. Today I will give you four. So it is your responsibility as church members to read the announcements to read the emails. Yes, sometimes in a given week you'll have many and they might not relate to you. And it's okay, you can just see it doesn't relate and you just delete it. But those that do relate, go ahead and read those. Know what's going on in the life of the church. There's a, a, a t-shirt that I want to get. And it's, yeah, it's been in the bulletin the last three weeks. <laughs> People ask, about, ask questions and it's good to ask questions, but sometimes the question has already been answered in the bulletin. So, Read your announcements, hear them, take note of them. Okay, now we have the call to worship. The call to worship is the official start of a corporate worship service. So uh, I think last week we uh, used Psalm 95.1 because we then sang, I think it was hymn number 13, which is based on Psalm 95, O come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Here we have God saying, come. It's, your, it's now the opportunity for you to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Come. Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So we, corporate worship, yes, is for the saints to worship the Lord. But we want saints from all the earth to, to come and to hear God's call and to heed that call and to sing 
his praises. Oftentimes, the call to worship will come from the Psalms because there are so many invitations for the people of God to come and sing and to proclaim his praises. But you have to be very careful. Just because there's language of come doesn't mean that's God calling you to worship him. So I thought of, uh, I was recently reading through Amos, and in Amos 4, it's a judgment on Israel. It says, prepare to meet your God. (laughs) That's, prepare to meet your God as in, I'm coming against you in battle because you have, uh, you know, flaunted justice. You just have been unjust and all this, the wickedness abounds. So it's not come and worship me. It's coming after you as a father disciplines child. Terry Johnson, in his book, Worshiping with Calvin, says, we relive the gospel every time we gather as a church to worship. We relive the gospel every time we gather as a church to worship. Somebody tell me how, in what sense, do the people of God relive the gospel when we come as a church to worship Him? Deep. So one way that we relive the gospel is by f- having Christ-centered worship. Yes. Well, you said it. I just summarized it. And that confession of sin is, is very early on in the service. So God has called you to worship. God has greeted you by his grace. And then you are suddenly aware of your unholiness. You're suddenly aware of your own sinfulness. You have this, you know, Isaiah moment, woe is me. You know, Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. I am not. How can I, someone who's unholy, come into the presence of the holy God? So we play that out every single Lord's Day, acknowledging our own sinfulness and our dependence upon the pardon of God in Christ. So in that sense, we relive the gospel as well. Jonathan Cruz says, God calls us to the most important work imaginable. Here's our plea for help and promises to be with us and accept us despite our inadequacies. What, does, what do you think he has in mind when he says God calls us to the most important work imaginable? Preaching the gospel? Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a very important work for all of us to do. Yes? Yeah. So going back to Romans 12, we are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay. Are you afraid of that language of, of work? 
Our most important work imaginable? Well, we're Protestants. We're not going to, we're not about works. We are about works. We are about the work of Christ, foundationally, and then what we offer to the Lord as fruit that's attached to the vine. Yes. Yes. Worship is what the, the primary way that we glorify God, enjoy Him forever. If, again, if liturgy is the work of the people, just generally speaking, this work is worship. Giving all that we are to the praise of God. God initiates. So man's call alone does not suffice to constitute corporate gathering. If it was just me or if it was just the elders saying, hey guys, come and worship the Lord, um, that's insufficient. We are doing, we are calling you to worship because God first has called all of us to worship. There is The only authority that we have in our call for you to worship is the divine call. If there was no divine call to worship, if there was no Psalm 95, 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord, if there wasn't that, then we would be binding your consciences unnecessarily. We'd say, come do something that God didn't command you to do. And we, we don't want to impose that on you. But here, we are saying, come and worship, because God says, come, let us sing to the Lord. And God's powerful word has brought us out of darkness and into his light. He has, he has saved us. He's called us into his new kingdom. And so we come. We hear that call. And so, yeah, the session does have an expectation because of what worship is, because of what God calls his people to worship him. The session exercises its spiritual authority to call people to worship. And we don't have time to, to look at this, but First Peter, First Peter 5, 1 through 5, God expects the elders to exercise oversight in the lives of all the sheep under their care. This is one of the reasons we have membership. We have to know who the sheep are, that we can encourage them to come and worship. And this call to worship applies only to these corporate gatherings. Okay, so again, we are, there's no command, for instance, to um, attend like a Good Friday service. There's no call from God to say, you must come to the cantata. Okay? You must come to a midweek prayer gathering. You must come to adult Bible fellowship. You must come to men's Bible study if you're a man, women's Bible study if you're a woman. There isn't that call. Now, I, I don't want you to think that we don't want you to come to those things. We want you to come to those things. Every offering we, we put out uh, is an opportunity to, uh, to hear the Word of God, to sing, to pray, to do the things, uh, to fellowship, to do the things that, generally speaking, we are all uh, expected to do, from, we're expected from God to do. We're supposed to be in the lives of one another. But we stop short of saying, you, you need to come. Okay. We want you to come. And, and that's really what it is. We see what good things are coming out of Cross Creek. We see what God is doing. And we want people, as many people as possible, to be involved in, in the life of the church. Because God calls us to worship him, we obey him. 
So we, I, I mentioned 1 Peter 5. There's also Hebrews 13. God does expect his sheep to be subject to their leaders. And uh, one, again, expectation is the attendance to corporate gathering of, uh, for the purpose of worshiping God. So BCO 49, 1, is on the ordering of the Lord's Day. And it says, When the congregation is to meet for public worship, the people, having before prepared their hearts thereunto, ought all to come and join therein, not absenting themselves from the public ordinances through negligence or upon pretense of private meetings. So our own Book of Church Order says, basically, that the public worship of God is to be preferred to private gatherings. So you don't say, well, I have this small group that meets at 1045 on Sunday, and I'm going to go to that and not corporate worship. And we are to order the day in such a way that we are not absenting ourselves. That's what the author to Hebrews says later on. He says, um, do not neglect the day as of the habit of some. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's, what's intriguing about that is that even first century Christians, some of them have the habit of neglecting to meet together. Every single generation, every single century, people are struggling with coming and hearing God's call and heeding God's call. The church, again, is called out. The divine call of salvation carries over into a corporate call. We are, the church is called the ecclesia, which has been called out. As the ecclesia, we hear this call, we heed this call with humility. So we have been saved, but what are we saved for? We've been saved from sin, from the wrath of God, from an eternity of hellfire. For what? To do our own good, to do our own pleasure? For worship. So God has called us out of that darkened state, and He has brought us into His presence for worshiping Him. And then the minister then prays the invocation. Talk about. Uh, this as one of the prayers in uh, a future lesson, but essentially it is a cry for help. Every single time I pray the invocation, you'll hear something about acknowledgement that God has called us to, to pray or to worship, but then our own neediness, our own inadequacy, our, our own dependence on the Lord to help us worship Him in spirit and in truth, because we know our frailties. We know uh, that we can become distracted. And we know that we do not worship God perfectly, and we need help. That's what the invocation is about. It's calling upon God. God has called us to worship him, so we're calling upon God to help us. Again, this is all of grace. We can't do any good thing apart from the grace of God. So, uh, BCO 49.4 says, All who attend public worship are expected to be present in a spirit of reverence and godly fear. So we come in the fear of the Lord. We come, having prayed Psalm 86, 11, Lord, unite my, name, unite my heart to fear your name. We come in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We come with reverence, knowing to whom we come. 
We're not coming just to, to meet a friend, though he is a friend of sinners. We're not coming to even meet uh, a respectable figure. We're not coming in the presence of a president, governor, mayor. We're coming in the presence of Almighty God, your creator, your redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is an all-consuming fire. We come into his presence. So we come reverently. In, the, in BCO 63.6, which is the chapter on the Christian life in the home, did you know that there's a chapter on Christian life in the home in this BCO? Yeah. Okay. It's a short chapter, but you could read it. It says, In the supreme task of religious education, parents should cooperate with the church by setting their children an example in regular and punctual attendance upon the sessions of the church school and the services of the sanctuary. So there's a reminder. Hey, parents, as you are teaching your children to worship God, to, uh, attend, uh, to, to hear God's word, make sure that you set an example. Make sure you come regularly and on time. It, it's, a, it's a strange phenomenon. And I know there are many factors Okay, I don't want to qualify this to the point that there's, we don't feel the, uh, the point here. Usually, the school day starts earlier than, say, even in ABF or Sunday school. Usually, the, a work day starts earlier than Sunday school or worship. I mean, worship's 1045, if that's what you're going to go to. That's, you're getting quite a number of hours, right, of free time. Your Monday through Friday or, or through Saturday, you're, you're up, you're out the door, five, six, seven in the morning, got to get those kids to school. And, hey, can't be late. Might lose my job. But all of a sudden, when it comes to Sunday, it's harder, isn't it? Well, you got all those kids, and those diapers to change and Got to get them in the door, and you have one less individual to help you. And it, yes, of course, there are all these, these factors. There's no doubt about it. But perhaps we can all improve in our regular and punctual attendance. Surely we can arrive on time and, and not skip out. I know that we're hungry and we want to eat, but is that worth missing the benediction? Uh, I was going to say this for the benediction, but it just seems... Uh, appropriate now, when um, this is back in Arizona when I was involved in a church, somebody uh, didn't know a person that he's speaking about and says, is that person a Christian? I said, yeah, of course. He's, he's here worshiping with us all. He's, yeah, he's a Christian. Oh, okay, because I didn't know because he always left before the benediction. Now, this might be a higher standard for this individual. If you don't receive the benediction, then, like, are you even a Christian? But what this person is, is prizing, of course, is that blessing from God through the minister. It's an important thing. It's, it's, it's the end of the corporate gathering. And this individual didn't want the other person to miss out on that blessing, if he really is a believer. Okay. Yeah, I understand there are different there are reasons we might leave a little early for, you know, things, get it, but just in general course, okay, our, 
our desire ought to be regular punctual attendance. That's what BCO 63 says. And it's in line, again, with Hebrews 10, 24, which, and 25, which I already cited. So the necessity of preparation, I read this, Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If you know who's calling you, then you know it's a very important responsibility, divine expectation that you are to prepare and come. You, the practice of preparation is with reverence and awe. I've already spoken about this a little bit. Therefore, this is Hebrews 12, 28, 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and, let us let, or, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We are then to come with, to God with grateful hearts, hearts full of thanksgiving because of the grace of God. Your heart should be pouring forth praise and thanksgiving when you, when you really think about what you are here to do. And that, and that you are here to do these things because God has saved you. How can your heart not sing forth praise? How can it not be full of gratitude? And reverence, in this word, reverence is used only one other time, in, and it's in, in Hebrews 5, 7, in reference to Jesus' reverence. That the father heard the cries of his son, the loud cries of his son, because of Jesus' reverence. Father heard the Son because of the reverence of the Son. And we come then with that profound respect for God, that knowledge of, uh, of who God is and what he is calling us to do. BCO 47.8 says, It behooves God's people not only to come into his presence with a deep sense of awe at the thought of his perfect holiness and their own exceeding sinfulness, but also to enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise for the great salvation which he has so graciously wrought for them through his only begotten Son and applied to them by the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we come in to worship God? Are we rightly preparing our hearts beforehand? And are we rightly preparing our hearts, our bodies, when we sit down? Again, I think we can all improve in every aspect of our attention to the liturgy, and it's important to prepare. Come in, perhaps quietly, reverently, not casually, not loudly. There's a reason Mrs. Basie plays a prelude five minutes before the call to worship. It's to prepare well, it's one to tell you, hey, guys, come on in, sit on down. You can carry that conversation after the service. And then it's, it's sometimes you know the, the, the songs that she's playing. You're thinking about those words. Or you're just praying, being led by some beautiful music. You're, being, you're praying that the Lord would prepare you for worship. Now, preparation also requires the proper ordering of the day's affairs, which we see in BCO 48.5. Let the provisions for the support of the family on that day be so ordered that others be not improperly detained from the public worship of God, nor hindered from sanctifying the Sabbath. And then in 48.3, we um, have our business and our recreations set aside. 48.3 says, It is the duty of every person to remember the Lord's Day and to prepare for it before its approach. All worldly business should be so ordered and seasonably laid aside 
as that they may not be hindered thereby from sanctifying the Sabbath, as the Holy Scriptures require. This is uh, worldly business as in, uh, not like it's sinful because it is worldly, but because it is different from what we are doing. And you, you, need, to, you need to have a job. You need to work. But the, the authors of the BCO are reminding us of God's word, which says, don't do your pleasure on the Lord's day. Don't engage in business on the Lord's day. You are to be focused on him and acts of necessity, acts of charity, acts of piety, you know, acts of mercy. These are the things. This is, this is Sabbath-keeping 101. You cannot worship God if you're caught up in the world. So you have to set those aside. Those are good pursuits for six days of the week, maybe five. Pursue those. Work heartily unto the Lord. And then you take the first day of the week, you sanctify it, set it apart, say, this is a different day. So no, I, I will not engage in, in that fun thing because it's not going to help me to do the things that I'm here to do, which is to worship God corporately and privately and uh, as a family. You set those aside. So some things to, to do, to consider doing for preparing for the Lord's Day is to be watchful on Saturday night. Everyone's sleep schedule is different. Everyone's tolerance of lack of sleep is, is different. But you should know your body. You should know uh, how many hours in general you can, you can get by with. Uh, how many hours would do you well? Uh, I know for me, if I don't get a good number of hours, I am incoherent with my speech. And I need to, I need to be able to speak. Uh, some can get by with a lot fewer hours and are perhaps more coherent than their husbands. <laughs> perhaps being trained in lack of sleep with all the children who require regular times of getting up. Anyways, so be watchful of, of how you're spending Saturday night. Are you uh, just spilling into Sunday morning because you've had quite the night on the town on Saturday and now you have, that was a wonderful time, but now you're not really engaged, you're not really prepared. Your mind is distracted or you're nodding off. Be well rested. Prepare your clothes, your Bibles, food, gas, other things. Get those preparations as much as possible done beforehand. So if you know that you're going to travel maybe 10, 15 miles to go to church or to go to a covenant group, Get gas on Saturday. There are scripture readings every Lord's Day, and sometimes two, sometimes four or five. Some parents, I know, they mark, their, they mark their Bibles and they mark their kids' Bibles. Maybe the Bible has several of those ribbons and just mark them. It's, okay, this is what we're going to be doing. It's one way of preparing. Get, get your clothes ready. I started that habit when I was, I don't know, middle school, I guess, and... Something feels off if I get in bed and I didn't put my clothes out. I'm like, something's wrong here. Oh, yeah. That's where I put my clothes, and there are no clothes there. Get out of bed. Do it. It's one way of preparing. That's just one less thing to worry about. Prepare your heart. Pray for all those who are involved. Pray for the minister. Uh, Pray for the preacher. They might not be the same on any given Sunday. Pray for the elders 
In particular, uh, whoever the elder is, that's going to be uh, doing part of the, the service. We always have an elder who leads the confession of sin, assurance of pardon. Um, pray for whoever that elder is. You might know who it is. I don't publish that, but you might know. Pray for the pianist. If you know that there's the, the choir that's going to sing, pray for the choir. Pray for the people who are preparing the Lord's Supper. If you know there's a baptism that Sunday, pray for the family. Pray for that, that child. Pray for the deacons. A lot of things that they are, are doing on the Lord's Day, and they could get distracted from, from some things that they need to be doing as well. So pray for them and that they can facilitate everything that needs to be done. So pray for everyone involved, and of course, pray for yourself and your own children and your spouse, and pray for any would-be visitors. They come through the door, that you'll have the boldness to talk with them, and the opportunity to talk with them, and a conversation that would be uh, hospitable. Say no to requests or invitations that might steer you away from acts of worship, charity, piety, necessity. Set your alarm for enough time not to rush out the door. Come into the sanctuary with reverence. Come calmly, come quietly, not casually. And most importantly, come expectant to hear, to see, taste, and receive the grace of God. Your hearts should anticipate and, and desire and yearn for, for that. Oh, I can't wait till 1045. That's when I'm going to hear my God call me to worship him. What a wonderful thing that is. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing that God has saved you and has said, come and worship me. So come expectant. Yes, you are there to, to give your lives to him, but he has given his life for you. He has given his only begotten son. What a joy. This is not like, oh, I have to come. God has called me, so I must come. It's God has called you. You get to come. It's the best thing in the world. I'm about, I'm about to preach, so I'm, I only have one minute, so I'm not going to do that. But I'll just end with this, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. May we be glad when they say, when the elders say, come into the house of the Lord. Let's go. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you who are an all-consuming fire, but who nevertheless have given us yourself. You've communed with us. You've given us your Son, your Spirit. Lord, we, we are glad to hear that call to come to you, to give praises due your name. Help us, Lord, to be more and more glad, joyful at, at what we get to do and to come expectant hopeful and, and even confident that you will give us the grace that we need to worship you and that you will work in us, that we might be transformed even from one degree of glory to another with each Lord's Day as we worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the gift of grace for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.